Hey guys, David Reeves here. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. Hope you enjoy. And remember, you can catch a new episode every Wednesday at noon central on all your streaming devices. Most of these podcasts have visuals, so if you want to see the entire video, check them out at creationsuperstore.com. They're available on DVD or digital download. All right, let's get to it. Hello, I'm David Reeves, host of Wonders Without Number. In each episode, we talk about breaking discoveries in science, which reveal that our Creator, the God of the Bible, has left a pattern of His fingerprints throughout the universe. Check out our other resources at davidreeves.com. Sign up for email updates to have encouraging nuggets sent straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free monthly magazine and like us on Facebook for daily inspiration and education regarding science and the Bible. What if I told you there was a language that many evolutionists use when writing books, when writing articles, and scientific journals? Join me for this conversation. I brought in a guest and friend, Paul Taylor. Let's find out more right now on Wonders Without Number. Welcome to Wonders Without Number. I'm David Reeves, and today we want to inform and inspire you regarding the wonders that we find literally all around us. An infinite number of wonders that point us directly to our Creator, the God of the Bible. You know, God's fingerprint can be found everywhere, from the farthest galaxy in the cosmos to the microscopic world of genetics and DNA. And ultimately, all scientific fields are drawing us closer to an understanding that the universe shows these design patterns, not accidental chance. And that includes you and me. You are wonderfully made. We're giving the tools that you need to defend your Christian faith, and we're going to kick it off right now with today's Heavens Declare. I'm here at beautiful Mount St. Helens in Washington State. You know, just about 40 years ago, this mountain was cone-shaped. But as you can see, it's not like that anymore. Now it's got this horseshoe shape. That's because on May 18, 1980, this volcano blew its top, <laughs> literally. The top 1,300 feet of material blasted away, leaving this crater. Now eventually, lava flows formed a new dome five new domes actually, all of which were destroyed by subsequent eruptions. But the sixth dome that formed between October 1980 and 86 is what you see today. It's composed of 2.6 billion cubic feet of lava, and it's quite young, having finished forming just over 30 years ago. Well, in 1996, geologists sent rocks from the lava dome to be radiometrically dated. Now, they used a method called potassium argon. So here's how radiometric dating works. You see, radioactive isotopes will decay at presumably predictable rates, called a half-life. Now, as they decay, they turn from one isotope, such as potassium, into another, in this case, argon. Well, scientists measured how much potassium and how much argon are in the rock, and they calculate the age of the rock, right? But creation scientists have pointed out for years that there are some major problems with radiometric dating. 
one big one is all of the assumptions that it's grounded on. You must assume that the half-life is constant and that it never varies. You have to assume that there was no contamination. For example, no argon was present in the sample before the decay began. Well, that's a lot of unprovable assumptions. Now, if radiometric dating and the assumptions that it's founded on were accurate, well then Mount St. Helens rocks should have yielded very young ages. After all, the rock was merely about a decade old. You see, the problem is they didn't. The rock gave an age of 350 thousand years. When they dated the minerals within the rock, ooh, the problem got much worse. They gave dates of 2.4 million years. This is for a 10-year-old rock. Now, Mount St. Helens highlighted that we shouldn't blindly trust the dates given by radiometric dating. The assumptions clearly aren't accurate, so the dates that they give are also inaccurate. Instead of trusting a method that doesn't even give correct ages for rocks of known age, well, maybe we should trust the Bible's history, which tells us that our Earth is around 6,000 years old. I'm David Reeves. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. All right, our testimonial today comes from Craig, who writes, Scripture and science do align. DRM has helped me overcoming the millions of years versus 6,000 years young earth age argument. I work as an IT professional at a local school in Pennsylvania. Thank you, Craig. Uh, it is often something that we talk about. The age of the earth is actually a very relevant issue because it points us back to the accuracy of God's word from the very beginning. So thank you for that comment. Uh, please continue to send in your comments and suggestions on our Facebook page and on our website, davidreeves.com. Now let's meet my guest. Paul is director of Strong Tower Ministries. Originally from the UK, Paul does an excellent job analyzing Darwin's life and legacy. He's the author of the book, Where Birds Eat Horses, and has led hundreds of tours to Mount St. Helens, studying the impact and environmental regrowth that took place after its eruption in 1980. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Now, I've just got to start with this right here because this title, Where Birds Eat Horses, uh, this is one of your books, and it has a very interesting history. Tell me about where you got inspiration for this. Well, um, you're right, it's, it's a book about language. Okay. And I had wanted to write a book about language, and I was doing a talk about language at the time, and uh, pointing out that the uh, evidence that uh, evolutionary scientists use is not actually really scientific. It's, ra it's rather their clever and deceptive use of language. Okay. So where the title comes from, well, um, there was a documentary series, a couple of documentary series, um, which are pretty old now and somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. Um, and, and some viewers may remember a documentary series produced jointly by the Discovery Channel and the BBC called Walking with Dinosaurs. Ooh. And it was one of the first uh, uses of CGI, really, in um, a so-called factual, and you know, put the word factual in inverted commas, <laughs> but a so-called factual program. It was delivered as if it was a um, wildlife documentary series. Now, the sequel to Walking with Dinosaurs was called Walking with Prehistoric Beasts. And uh, this was the idea of um, the, the, the where they took the story was from 
the supposed date of 65 million years ago after the extinction of the dinosaurs up to the uh, evolutionary development of modern birds and mammals. That's where they were taking this. So uh, the first episode, the main stars of the first episode are a large extinct bird called a Gastornis. Okay. And this this bird is, is huge and uh, on the program they're showing it as a, as a meat-eating bird, but they're saying it's more or less at the end of its life, it's producing fewer eggs and it's going to die out. Another star of the show was a little creature called a Propaleotherium. Okay. Now, Propaleotheria is one of the things that evolutionists say must be uh, an ancestor of the horse. So this little creature about so high, um, is wandering through the forests behaving like a horse. Horses, in fact, there were six of them in the, in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the movie. And uh, uh, in this particular story, and it's a 20 minute sequence, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm already sounding as though I'm rambling, but I'm not gonna go on for 20 minutes on this, don't <laughs> worry. 20 minute sequence showing these creatures in the forest and this Gastornis bird, and uh, uh, the little horses, behaving like little horses, are eating grapes that have fallen from vines wrapped around trees. And it says it's a sunny day, so the grapes have started to ferment and are producing alcohol. <laughs> so the reaction time of these Propaleotheria is uh, harmed by this. Mm-hmm. And one of them is not able to get away quick enough when the Gastornis runs over, grabs one of the uh, uh, Propaleotheria and eats it. And you see you know, ripping its flesh apart on the program. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the narrator says, this is a world where birds eat horses. And I thought, that's it. That's my <laughs> title. And it's a very significant uh, piece of film because is it based on real science? Right. Surprisingly enough, yes, there is a bit of real science behind it. And you'll find this with many things that evolutionists write. Here's mm-hmm. the real science. There is a fossil graveyard in Germany. It's pretty well known uh, called the Messel Pit. Yes. And one day in the Messel Pit, where there's lots of uh, animals, uh, fo- fossils found there, one day they found eight fossils. Okay. One Gastornis. Okay. Six Propaleotheria. Okay. And one fossilized bunch of grapes. <laughs> Do you see the significance of the grapes in the story? <laughs> they wove this 20 minute piece of fiction <laughs> out of these real discoveries. There's the real discovery. And this is what I was trying to challenge people to do in my book, to so for people to see, yeah. without needing to have a degree in science to do it, that pretty much any scientific article, any anything mentioned in a uh, high school textbook, uh, any documentary film of the sort, there is actually this germ of real science and where you've got to throw away the majority of nonsense uh-huh. to get at what the real science is and you've got to realize that there has been a story woven around it. That story uses a number of specific language constructions which you can spot. Without being uh, a qualified scientist, you simply need to be able to read and then you'll find these things. And that's the whole point of the book, Where Birds Eat Horses. Very interesting. And this kind of applies to uh, lots of scientific fields and lots of theories, even ridiculous theories, are based on some modicum of truth or, or some factual data that they start with. And then it turns into this twisted, convoluted thing. But you're saying an entire 20 minute sequence because of the finding of eight fossils, basically. That's right. And, and, and 
the, the, the documentary series, is, you can get it, uh, I, th I can't remember if it's on Netflix or uh, Amazon, but you can actually find this series uh, <laughs> today. The second episode is, is interesting from the same point of view because it starts with this creature called an Andrew Sarkis. Okay. And it's fascinating. This is a very fierce, wolf-like looking creature, carnivorous creature. Yeah. And uh, uh, the f in the first sequence, you find it on the beach eating turtles. Okay. And um, there, it's a very bloodthirsty program. And they, they tell you, well, the Androsarchus shouldn't be there. It should be inland, but it's come to the beach. And you've got to put that in your mind. Why are they telling you that, that it's on the beach? Yes. There is clearly a significance in their story. Well, then they go on to talk about this creature being... Um, uh, um, it's not uh, a wolf, they say. It's not a tiger. It's actually a close relative of the goat. Really? It's in the family Capricornus. It's, a, it's related to goats and sheep. Okay. How on earth can they possibly say that? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, presumably you want to see a fossil and look at its hooves, you know, because they say yeah. it's, a, it's, it's got hooves like a goat. In fact, they even did give a little quip. Uh, they say it's uh, very much a, uh, a sheep in wolf's clothing. <laughs> and it's interesting that they deliberately twist scripture because that yes. shows you where they're coming from with this. And then you have a look at to see what the fossils are and you find that all they've got is the top of a fossil skull. They don't have any fossil hooves or anything. Okay. So they say that this skull looks like a goat's skull and therefore they've developed this whole theory. But all they have in fossil terms is the top of its skull. Now they built a whole narrative around this. What was the significance of saying that it had come towards the water's edge with the turtle? Because it's related to another creature they say called a mesonychid and therefore it's an ancestor of the whale. What? It came to the beach and it evolved into a whale. Oh my goodness. It's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and of course they didn't come to that till a couple of episodes later. Right. But you can see they were setting these things up, uh, and uh, because it's narrated as if it's a wildlife documentary mm -hmm. series, mm -hmm. the, the viewer is sort of lulled into this false sense of security. Okay. I mean, I can view it, and uh, you can view it, and uh, you would no doubt enjoy it as one of the best sitcoms that you've <laughs> ever watched. You would be rolling <laughs> around laughing at it, but you know, people are going to watch it as if it's a serious wildlife documentary. The majority of the viewers, yes, we'll take it that way. Hi, I'm David Reeves, host of Wonders Without Number. Like what you're seeing? You can find so much more on the Creation Superstore. You'll find over a thousand books, DVDs, and other quality resources on origin science, creation, and Bible history. Whether you're looking for nature documentaries, educational books, homeschool resources, or children's videos, we've got it all, so be sure to head over and check it out. Use this special promo code to receive 10% off your first order. So you talk in this book about the language of evolution. A and so does evolution have its own specific language? You've mentioned, again, where facts have been twisted, yes. but can you actually pick anything up by reading about yes. accounts? Well, you know, I came across these language constructions within a conversation with uh, um, you know, your friend and my friend, uh, Mike Riddle. You know Brilliant, very well. man, yes. And uh, he talks about these. Um, and I basically took those ideas with his permission and I expanded on them and gave them examples. And he talks about fuzzy words and yes. magic words and bias words. And fuzzy words are interesting. Fuzzy words, uh, you can spot these. It's where they have deliberately told you something, but they have a get out. They're giving you a sort of innuendo, if you like, but they've got a get out. For example, using the word probably. Okay. 
or possibly. You see, so did the, um, this, this uh, dinosaur has got a hook where its thumb would be. Mm -hmm. Possibly it used it for hanging around in trees like a sloth today. <laughs> now, it is possible, yeah. I will grant them it is possible, but they don't know that for sure. All they have are the bones. Mm -hmm. But they deliver you something about the creature's uh, behavior based on that. Okay. And you have so many of these things. There are other words um, like could have been mm -hmm. or even would have been, which is supposed to give factual stuff, but they, they, they use it to cast doubt. Or they give you levels of imagination. Or they give you unanswered questions. The Allosaurus, uh, uh, Allosaurus skeletons are always found by themselves, it says on a, a board in the Natural History Museum in London. Okay. Did it live a solitary life? Oh, okay, so now, there's an association yes. there. And it's a false association, of uh -huh. course, because, uh, for example, if uh, you study elephants, you know that an elef elephants are herd animals, mm -hmm. but when an elephant knows it's going to die, it wanders away from the herd and dies alone. Okay. So can you imagine you know, if, if uh, the Lord tarries and we find a fossil elephant a few thousand years in the future, if, yeah. if the world lasts that long, and you see the, f uh, the elephant skeletons, the fossils, by themselves, are you going to then assume, well, all elephants live by themselves? Uh -huh. Which, of course, they don't. They live in herds. So maybe the Allosaurus did live by itself, but you can't say that by looking at the bones. So you're, you're taking one piece of data, you find a single fossil, right? Yes. A single fossil, fossil specimen, and then you extrapolate from there. Did it live a solitary yeah. life? And so this unanswered question yeah. is not giving you information, but what, what do, when people look at that uh, uh. display in a natural history museum okay. and they leave, they leave with that idea in their head that this is what it did. Uh -huh. There's a fascinating display in London's Natural History Museum on the um, Deinonychus. Yes. Uh, absolutely fascinating with levels of imagination and the display shows uh, three Deinonychuses or is it Deinonychi? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, three of them yep. and they're attacking a Tenontosaurus. Okay, uh, just for, for the audience's information, some are already aware, but this is similar to a Velociraptor except yes. this was the one that was actually used as the model for Jurassic Park. Yes, if you see ways. Velociraptor in Jurassic Park, it wasn't a Velociraptor, it was a Deinonychus, yes. meat-eating animal. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jurassic Park says this is a problem-solving dinosaur and you see it solving problems. How uh -huh. can you get that from the bones? <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, that, that, again, in behavior. But in this case, there's three of these attacking a Tenontosaurus, which mm -hmm. is like a small Apatosaurus, okay. uh, but it's clearly bigger than a Deinonychus. Yeah. Okay. So there's three of them attacking it. Um, and so they say, well, clearly uh, they, they attacked it. They must have hunted it in a pack. Uh, okay, therefore it's a pack animal like African dogs, so it must have had good hearing and good eyesight. Oh wow. And you see there's layer after layer after layer of innuendo being built up. What are the actual bones? The actual bones are that in one place they found four fossils, a Tenontosaurus, uh, three Deinonychuses. Yeah. Obviously those dinosaurs were chasing the Tenontosaurus and then they all suddenly dropped down dead and got fossilized. <laughs> So an elaborate story of behavior, and that's what, that's what many people don't spot, okay, because you can't tell behavioral traits most of the time yep. just from a set of bones. So these are the fuzzy words that they give. Okay. 
Take it further, what, is, what are magic words? Well, you know, obviously in, in, in popular fairy stories, a magic word is where you say something and something that's impossible happens because you've said the word. Evolutionists have this. Things that are completely impossible to happen are become possible, they say, as soon as you have millions of years. Okay. And so I treat the word millions of years uh, it's a bit like it's a magic word. And you'll find that throughout articles. There's clearly something that's impossible to happen, but they say, you know, give it enough time and it could happen. So you take an extremely improbable theory yes. and then you wave the magic wand of time and say, oh, but given enough million years, yes. it can happen. That's right. So you okay. can spot these two things quite easily. You can go through and spot these in articles. The fuzzy words, where they're deliberately giving innuendo. The uh, magic words, uh, looking at millions of words. The biased ones are quite clear, like an article that might say, without any justification, uh, describing chimpanzees as our cousins. Okay. And they've not given you any scientific, they even, haven't even gone through any of the stuff that says, well, we think there's a common ancestor between chimps and humans. We know that's nonsense, but they're not even going through their own nonsense on this. Okay. They use a word like cousins because it's, uh, it's immediately recalling all the bias that we're supposed to have with that. Uh. So you've got those three things. That's all you need to look for. Okay. And I even get people to go through articles with three different color highlighters to go through the, for the fuzzy words, the magic words, and then the, uh, the bias. The biases. Words. It's fascinating. You know, another thing that sometimes we see the atheistic community use is almost like a bait-and-switch tactic. Tell me about that. Yes. I, I've, I've got a, a chapter in the book which is called Hamlet and Humpty Dumpty, and there's this one interesting scene in Hamlet and, uh, where Polonius is talking to Hamlet, and Hamlet is deliberately pretending to be mad. Uh, Polonius catches him reading something, and he says, What do you read, my lord? Hamlet says, Words. <laughs> okay. okay. And you can see he's being deliberately obtuse. Then Polonius says, What is the matter, my lord? Hamlet replies, between who? Now, we have to understand what uh, Polonius is saying there because it's, uh, it's back in Elizabethan times. When he says, what's the matter? He's not saying, are you okay? He's not saying that. He's saying, what is the subject matter of the book? That's what he means. Okay. He says, what is the matter? He's asking about the book. Uh -huh. What's the subject matter? Hamlet deliberately misunderstands him yes. and says, between who? Because another meaning of what is the matter is, is there an argument between two people? That's bait and switch. Evolutionists use this all the time where there's one word that means two things and they deliberately transfer them even the word evolution we understand what that means biologically and yet it would be quite true to say you know it's been wonderful me for me to be here and to see the studio you've got so it's definitely true isn't it that David Reeves Ministries has evolved over time absolutely is that okay to say that yeah okay you want to take me out and stone <laughs> sacrilegious me now <laughs> no 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 I get it and there's an example of the word evolved and yet you are a creation ministry dedicated yes. to opposing evolution. Two different meanings of the word evolution. Okay. But evolutionists use that all the time. So let's talk about that for just a second because evolution equates to change yes. in a very loose sense yes. of the term. Yes. A and so obviously we, we would admit that even within animal kinds, there have been changes. There yes. have been, uh, there's been speciation. That's there right. people, uh, animals have been selectively bred Yes. By humans, by the way. That's right. And changed into different species or different breeds 
but not beyond the extent of kinds. Yes, not beyond the biblical kinds. And so they're not the same thing. That sort of change, which sometimes people have referred to as microevolution, I prefer not to call it that for this reason, speciation I prefer to call it. But it is a form of change, yes, but it is not what we understand by Darwinian biological evolution, because Darwinian biological evolution requires this increased, spontaneous introduction of new genetic information which is not what you get. So it is definitely bait and switch, two different meanings of the same word, and it's done deliberately to fool you. It's an issue of language, not an issue of science. No, the Bible is very, very clear. You know, some people have told me that, uh, well, uh, Genesis 1 tells us uh, why God made the world. Evolution tells us how God made the world. Now, there are passages in the Bible that tell you why God made the world, but the strange thing is that Genesis 1 is not one of them. Genesis 1 is very clear about how God made the world and it's very detailed. That's the way language is used in the Bible. It's not used in a way that's ambiguous. It's used in a way that's definite. So the use of language by God in how, in how he told us he did things contrasts greatly with the deliberate twisting of the language being used by evolutionists in order to put forward their theory. Thank you, Paul, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, as we've seen, everything points us back to Christ and the truth of his word. This television program is using the evidence of creation to confirm what we read in the very first part of our Bibles because I want you to know that the last part can be trusted as well. The part that tells you that Jesus laid down his life at Calvary for you. If you've not received him, you can do that right now. He stands at the door and he knocks. He will forgive you of, his, of your sins. He will come into your life. All you have to do is ask. He will empower you by way of the Holy Spirit and give you the gift of eternal life with him. If you've made that decision or if you still have questions, get in touch with us and let us know. We want to help you in your spiritual journey in every way possible. I'm David Reeves and I want to remind you to keep looking up because truly the heavens declare the glory of God. Hello, I'm David Reeves, host of the TV show Creation in the 21st Century on TBN and the Heavens Declare video series. Each week we talk about breaking discoveries in science which reveal that our Creator, the God of the Bible, has left a pattern of His fingerprints throughout the universe. Engage with other like-minded believers through the Creation Club. This website offers thousands of articles written by scores of authors in multiple languages. Sign up to get our free monthly magazine delivered to your door. Want more? Genesis Science Network is our free 24-7 TV network, reaching millions of people around the world on internet, Roku, Fire TV, and mobile devices. Shop over a thousand books and videos on the Creation Superstore, the world's largest origins-related store. Visit our Wonders of Creation Center and sign up for email updates to have encouraging articles sent straight to your inbox. Like us on Facebook for daily inspiration and education regarding science and the Bible.